Merry Christmas. So with some of you, and maybe some of you might be ahead of us, but along with some of you, my family and I are finishing up the reading through the Gospel Primer. In this past, we read the section titled, Mortifying the Flesh with Fullness. And in this section, Pastor Vincent proposes that we are more likely to keep our our lives empty of sin if we're keeping them full of Christ. We're more likely to keep sin pushed out of our life, not by the mere efforts of pushing out sin, but by consequence of keeping our lives full of Christ. And so he asserts on page 45, on the most basic of levels, I desire fullness. And fleshly lusts seduce me by attaching themselves to this basic desire. They exploit the empty spaces in me, and they promise that fullness will be mine if I give in to its demands. Sounds like Genesis, doesn't it? When my soul sits empty and is aching for something to fill it, such deceptive promises are extremely difficult to resist. It's powerfully true. And he says, consequently, the key to mortifying fleshly lusts is to eliminate the emptiness within me and replace it with fullness. And I accomplish this by feasting on the gospel. And on this point, he references John chapter 6, verse 35. He who continually comes to me will never hunger or thirst again. And he concludes this section with this, to the the degree that I am full, I am also free. Pastor Vincent's stated aim in writing this section is this, that we would keep ourselves occupied with God's blessings, that we are continually filled up with the gospel of Christ. Church family, that's what we're doing this evening. We're filling ourselves up with the good news of Christ. We're feasting on the gospel, the good news that Jesus gave himself for us. We should be doing this every day. True? But especially on the eve of his arrival. Tonight we're filling ourselves up with the good news about Jesus. This, it felt, is so important to remind us of this as we sit on Christmas Eve, a holiday that we celebrate year after year after year with a culture that throws so much distraction at us. And I think at times our tendency is to react to the distraction rather than settle on the celebration of Christ. We're not just here because it's Christmas Eve on a Sunday, which is kind of fun. 
but we're here to fill ourselves up with the reality of what God our Savior has done for us. All through the Old Testament, the Lord gave, commanded the Israelites to certain holidays or observations, seasons, feasts, to remember, to recall, to focus their attention on the goodness of the Lord and his faithfulness. They were called to that. We're not commanded to these same seasons or times or rituals. And yet at the same time, it's really good for us to take out seasons and to have celebrations and to intentionally remember to take time to slow our lives down, to change it up a bit, to put a tree or a manger or a cross in our living rooms and say, God has done something and we're different because of it. So as his people, we take intentional time to stop the normal flow of our lives, to organize our lives and our priorities about remembering and recalling and celebrating. To fill ourselves up with the faithfulness of the Lord, his attributes and his actions. How do we do this? We do it by telling stories. And even by telling the same stories we've heard over and over. Like our ancient brothers and sisters. We sing same songs. We put out same decorations. We recount God's acts. We engage in repetitive worship, Christ-filled seasonal traditions. We speak the same truths to our children, to our friends, to sojourners, new friends who come around our table, even to strangers, newcomers. We speak of who God is. We speak of what God has done and what he has promised to do. We celebrate. So that's what we're doing here together tonight. While there may be a lot of other activities, think about, I was thinking about this in preparation. As we're doing this, there's hosts of other people doing all kinds of different celebrations. Some Christ honoring, some clueless about the King of, Christ, the, King of the universe. But we are here together tonight. Why is that? Because we have set aside in this family, in this season, on this night, to fill ourselves with the fullness, to intentionally and intensely remember the glories of Christ our King. And in so doing, we fill up the empty places in our hearts. We put, we, by absorbing light, we push out darkness. We move our empty spots to full. We make ourselves 
resistant, more resistant to the allure of sin. We make room for Christ. So think about the reality of our presence here together. We're here to celebrate the birth of Jesus Christ, the life of Christ, and the kingdom of Christ. So these three realities deepen our celebration. Our king has arrived. Our king has spoken. And he's also promised. Our king has arrived. We looked at this a few weeks ago. The prophet Isaiah says, The people who have walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at harvest. For to us a child is born, and to us a son is given. So God's kingdom is and will be, and for this reason we can go on living lives of fearless confidence and peace. Because of what he has done, we have confidence. He's done it. He has fulfilled his words. And because he promises, we can have peace, regardless of how we may be interpreting our current circumstances. And we do this not just for ourselves so our lives can be better, although inevitably it seems to be that's the way it works. But we do this for the glory of the Lord, the salvation of our children, our neighbors, our friends, people in our communities, the advance of his kingdom. And so that we might know how to live in these ways that I'm talking, not only has the king arrived, but he's also spoken. We talked about this last week. As the very word of God, Jesus brings his life in his words. He has brought us both sightedness and life. In his life and teaching through his word and his spirit, he is guiding us to see things that we cannot see on our own. True. But we must be humble enough to receive. He brings wisdom to our foolishness, love to our selfishness. He carries us beyond short-sighted rule following and servile fear to a kingdom of joyful, obedient pursuit. Right, friends? Where you have heard that it was said, but I say unto you that we would go further, that we would step over the lines, that our heart would want to pursue God's attributes in his glory and then also instilled in us for all of eternity. We will literally chase the attributes, the glory of the Lord forever and never see the end of it, but always relishing in it. Or, like we said last week, Jesus wants to take us further up and further in. So up until John chapter 14, numerous times Jesus has been trying to help his disciples see that his departure 
is eminent. It's going to happen. He's repeated himself over and over. And by the time we get to chapter 14, his disciples are not exactly sure where he's going, but they're now starting to be convinced that he is going somewhere. And they're nervous. They're distressed. Their hearts are in turbulence. Where are you going, Lord? This is not the way we thought this was going to go down. So Jesus comforts them with a promise. John chapter 14, verses 1 through 3. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would I have told you that I go and prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. When Jesus said to his disciples, let not your hearts be troubled, he was promising them that his death would not be the end. In other words, disciples, don't be concerned when this thing doesn't go the way you think it should be going. Isn't that good for us? I mean, right? If we're looking around, sometimes we think, man, this isn't going the way it's ever gone before in my life, nor is it the way that I would do it, or it's the way I think it should be going. But Jesus says, let not your hearts be troubled. He explains that his death and his subsequent ascension into heaven, rather than leaving them destitute, is going to provide opportunity for two specific enabling realities. One, that he's preparing a place for his disciples, for his followers. And two, to send them the Holy Spirit to comfort them and to teach them and to lead them. When Jesus said, I'm going to prepare a place to his disciples, he was speaking again of his death. We shouldn't imagine here that Jesus has been building heaven for the last 2,000 years and it's still kind of under construction, not quite finished yet. Rather, his words mean that his death was the preparation for us to receive a place in the Father's house. It's ready now. In his death-to-life experience, he became the forerunner of our death-to-life experience. And so Hebrews 6.20 would tell us that. We are in Christ. We have died with Christ. We have life in Christ, Colossians 3. He has prepared our place for us by his death. He has also promised that he would send the Holy Spirit to disciples, to all believers. So in chapter 14, verse 26, a little bit later than what I just read, Jesus says, The Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, 
He will teach you all things and bring to remembrance all that I have said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. And then again he repeats, Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. Then finally, he leaves them with a mission to accomplish. I'm not just leaving you here to twiddle your thumbs and wait. I want you to be actively waiting. He gives them a call, a mission. And so throughout John chapter 15 and then into 16, Jesus speaks of the disciples' victory over the world through the power of the Holy Spirit. So the book of Acts gives a picture of a fulfillment of these promises as Jesus' followers in the power of the Spirit took the gospel into the world. Guys, we're still experiencing the ripples of that very reality. And not only that, but this same Spirit is at work and living in us today. Guys, this is reason for us to celebrate. And our mission is the same as their mission. Go therefore into all the world and make disciples of all nations. Matthew 28. And so we fill our hearts with these two things. Two promises and a mission. We chase out the empty spaces. Jesus has prepared us a place. He has given us His Spirit. And we're on mission. We know what we're called to do. And it's not for our hearts to be troubled and to be cowering in fear. In a season of cooking making, cookie making, we might say it this way. A trouble-free heart is two parts promise, one part mission. Now there's three thinking errors that I think are common at the root of all our unrest. You see these in the very beginnings of Genesis. They trace all the way through the Old Testament into the New and even I would encourage you to consider that at the, at the root, if you unpack all of your struggles or your difficulties, when your heart is at rest, and some, for some of us, when our heart gets unrest, we get anxious. For some of us, when our heart is troubled, we get angry. For some of us, when our hearts get troubled, we, get de- we tend towards depression. For some of us, we go out and buy things and try to fill our hearts. We're impulsive. If you unpack all of that and you boil it down, There's three thinking errors that are common at the root of all of our unrest and sin. Are his words reliable? Is God near? Is he close to me? Does does he care about me? Does he see my plight? And do I have a purpose? These three things, I would argue, are at the root of all of our unrest and sin. And when these three questions rattle around in our minds, we find ourselves empty. And like Pastor Vincent, I believe that the Bible makes it clear that we are most at risk 
of sin and trouble when we are empty of Christ. We are most at risk of sin and trouble when we're not rehearsing and filling ourselves up with two parts promise, one part mission. But tonight we fill ourselves up, not just here, but when you go home, let's keep filling ourselves up with the good news, the gospel of Christ. As we sit down to feast either tonight or tomorrow or multiple times during this week, may we be reminded as we spoke together out loud that this is just a symbol of us feeding our souls and this kingdom reality of which one day we will live in and we're making movements in the kingdom even now as we feast and we fill our spirits as we fill our bellies with the good news of all that God has done for us in Christ. We should not let our souls be empty and vulnerable, but rather fill them with the truth of God. And I say to you and me again one more time, Jesus says, don't let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. So four statements of promise that Jesus makes in, in this passage, John 14, 1 through 7, summarizing. But four statements of promise that we can fill our hearts with on this Christmas Eve, this, this Christmas season in all of our lives. But I think especially tonight, four things. Believe in God, believe also in me. Again, in other words, let us fill ourselves up with the truths of what God has done in all of the scriptures as well as human history. Church, our faith is trackable. The second thing, the second promise, I prepare a place for you. Jesus has accomplished the work for us. His death to life experience is now our death to life experience. It is His work we hope in, not ours. Our place in His presence forever is secure because He secured it. He has prepared a place for us. The third promise. Where I am, you may be also. We are in the safety and security of Jesus' already not yet kingdom. And we will experience the full reality of His completed kingdom one day. And to assure us of that, He has deposited His Spirit within us. And if you're sitting here and any of this resonates with you, or if you've come consistently because I'm longing for things that I don't yet have, but I know where to find them, then you can trust His Spirit is at work with you. Because if He wasn't, you wouldn't be here. We are not alone 
He is with us. And the fourth promise, you know the way to where I am going. How do we know the way? Because our King has arrived, because He has spoken, and because He has promised. So let us remember this is an intentional and intense season of filling up. Tonight is an intentional time. Tomorrow is an intentional time for us to fill up. Even tonight, as we're together and we're singing these familiar songs and doing some familiar things, let's just take it in. Being with familiar people. Let's be reminded. Let's celebrate. Let's eliminate the empty places in us and fill them up with the fullness of Christ. And so we may feast this Christmas Eve, this Christmas, on the gospel of Christ our King. Father in heaven, Run these truths deep and even deeper into our hearts. Remind us how good it is to be called your sons and daughters. Remind us what a miracle it is and how true it is that you have put your spirit into our spirit into our heart and lives. To make us your children and even your temples of worship. Help us to land on that to land on us even more deeply tonight. Thank you for this time together, time to celebrate, time to be joyful, a time to remind ourselves of all your goodness seen most clearly in Christ our King, in whose name we pray. Amen. Evening, everyone. So some of you might know that for the past two years, I've had the privilege of writing a Christmas story kind of as my gift to all of you. It's, it started, my parents went to a church in Pennsylvania long before us kids were around, and the pastor there every Christmas, instead of preaching a sermon, he reads a story that he wrote. So we've had those books for years, and that's what uh, this was inspired by. Um, So that being said, this is a story called Christmas Nuts. I've never really liked Christmas the commercialism that starts in November, the annoying repetitive music, the emotionally frenzied shoppers, the fake holiday cheer everyone tries to muster up. Some people need all that holiday religious garbage, but not me. I guess I've seen too many messed up people in news stories to buy into the whole peace on earth thing. It's not that I disagree with all the values of Christianity. It's just the absolute blindness of its converts that gets me going around trying to convince everyone of some fairy tale, parading their false hope and thumping their Bibles. In fact, I went to college to get away from such narrow-mindedness. 
only to get stuck with Luther Tyler's. Luther wasn't just your run-of-the-mill Protestant convert. I'm pretty sure he was the biggest Christian fanatic since his namesake. He prayed before every meal, repeatedly asked me to attend church with him, and had a knack for turning any conversation into a seminary lecture. It had been the longest semester of my life. And with Luther leaving for Christmas, I was looking forward to a quiet couple of days. Little did I know, those quiet days would never come. It was four days before Christmas, and I was absorbed in a good book, when the cheerful voice of my roommate snapped me out of my concentration. Hey, Thomas, you're coming with me to Christmas Eve dinner at the Kirklands. He said as if I had been already decided. No, I replied flatly. Luther had made some friends at his church, mainly the Kirklands, a whole family of religious nuts. Luther had told me all about them, and they, they sounded just as I had always imagined a family in a cult would. They had something like eight kids, homeschooled, of course, thought the Bible was literally written by God and firmly believed in essential oils. The chances of me spending an evening with this family on the eve of their ideology's biggest holiday were slim to none. Confident I had made my point clear, I returned to my book, but Luther wouldn't leave it alone. Come on, man. You don't have anything else to do, and you'll like the Kirklands. I'm not going over to some priest's house on Christmas Eve so you, you can all gang up and try to convert me, I said, raising my voice. Mr. Kirkland is a deacon, not a priest, and we can't force someone to be converted. It's a work of the Holy Spirit, and I cut him off before he could go into one of his sermons. Listen, Luther, I'm not going, okay? Okay, okay, I'll drop it, he replied, holding up his hands in mock surrender. But Luther didn't drop it. For the next three days, he did everything to convince me to go, short of blatantly asking. He'd bring up the Kirklands in conversation, being sure to mention their hospitality, friendliness, and Mrs. Kirkland's famous cooking. He was in the middle of a five-minute monologue about how nice it is when people welcome strangers who are far from home in for the holidays when I finally snapped. Fine, Luther, I'll make you a deal. If I go with you to the Kirklands, you won't bug me about going to church or gab about the sermon or what Pastor So-and-so said for a month. In my mind, I was basically asking Luther to become a mute for a month, but I felt the trade was fair. It's a deal, Luther said enthusiastically, shaking my outstretched hand, obviously not paying much mind to the consequences of the deal he had just struck. I turned back to the research document I had been reading, feeling very pleased with myself. I had gotten a free dinner and no religious talk for a month. All I had to do was suffer through one evening surrounded by a family of Christianity nuts, just one evening. I actually had the chance to get out of going. Luther came down with some kind of flu and said I didn't need to go. I think he was finally realizing the mistake he had made. But I was determined to keep my end of the deal. I really wanted that month free from religious talk. And that's how I found myself, standing on the Kirkland's front porch on the evening of Christmas Eve. The small light on the front porch was really dim as I groped around in the darkness searching for the doorbell. I paused as my numb fingers finally found the small brass button. Second thoughts swirled around my mind, like the snowflakes dancing around the porch. Oh, what the heck, I said out loud and pressed the doorbell. I heard the soft tinkling of a bell from somewhere inside the house. There was a complete silence for a split second, and then the house seemed to erupt with noise. What happened next was so sudden, it's almost a blur. The door was suddenly flung open, and I was welcomed in by a bearded man with a booming voice, who I took to be Mr. Kirkland. An army of children swarmed around us, chattering excitedly. 
I was just sh- shaking Mr. Kirkland's hand when Mrs. Kirkland came around the corner, balancing a baby on her hip. Introductions were quickly made, and after hanging up my coat and depositing my wet sneakers next to the pile of children's snow boots, I was swept into a small living room with a gigantic Christmas tree in the corner that made the room feel even smaller. I sat down on the well-worn couch as Mr. Kirkland settled himself on an easy chair facing me, a child in each knee. Mrs. Kirkland disappeared back into the kitchen from which smells emanated that confirmed all of Luther's stories. As I sat there chatting with Mr. Kirkland, I had the strong feeling that something was different. Something was different about this place. Maybe it was the swarm of children playing around the decorated tree, or the way in which the children responded so quickly to Mrs. Kirkland's voice when she asked for someone to set the table. Or maybe it was just the diffuser in the corner filling the room with the eye-burning scent of peppermint. But whatever it was, it was different. Dinner was soon declared ready, and all eleven of us crowded around a table that should have only sat six, but somehow we all fit. I just sat down when both my hands were firmly gripped by the children on either side of me. I must have looked a little confused because little Macy on my left felt it necessary to explain. We're going to pray to Jesus, she said in a half whisper, screwing her eyes shut and bowing her head as if showing me what to do. The rest of the family followed suit. As Mr. Kirkland prayed, I looked around the dinner table. What was it? I asked myself. Was it the sincerity in the family's faces as they prayed? Something was different. I just couldn't put my finger on it. Little Macy's whisper in my ear interrupted my thoughts. You have to close your eyes. She said it with such conviction that I did, in spite of myself. Dinner was really quite enjoyable, and I even caught myself relaxing a bit, all the time still pondering the difference with the Kirklands. Normally I would keep such questions to myself, but I finally couldn't hold back any longer. During a lull in the conversation, I blurted out, So Mr. Kirkland, what is it that makes everything here so different? Mr. Kirkland looked up from his pile of mashed potatoes with a slightly surprised look on his face. He thought for a moment. Well, Thomas, the difference you were probably asking about is, but he was cut off by the clattering of the gravy pitcher getting knocked over by a misplaced elbow. My question forgotten for a moment, everyone jumped from their seats in an attempt to escape the flood of gravy, quickly spreading its way across the table and making pools on the floor. Dish rags and napkins were retrieved from the kitchen, and the spill was soon cleaned up. I excused myself from the table and went to the bathroom to clean the gravy off my hands. It took a little bit to get the greasy mess cleaned off, especially with the soap that looked like it was made out of oatmeal and vegetable lard. This stuff must be kosher or something, I mumbled to myself as I scrubbed in vain attempt to get the handmade Puritan soap to lather. Finally, I was able to clean my hands and was just drying them off when I heard children shouting, quickly followed by a sobbing howl. So the Kirkland offspring aren't perfect, I thought to myself. Up to that point, it almost seemed as if they were. But all good things must come to an end, as they say. By the time I returned to the dining room, the commotion had calmed down a bit. Little Macy was wiping a splatter of gravy away from her forehead while one of her older brothers stood close by. He limply gripped a dripping gravy spoon in his hands. His face bore the look of a convicted criminal. It didn't take a Sherlock to put the pieces together. I found the whole scene once again different. It wasn't the children, exactly. I've seen kids fight and cause mischief before. I guess it was Mr. Kirkland. He was down on his knees, eye level with the children, speaking to them in a steady, firm voice. Bartholomew, he said, turning to his little boy. 
You need to ask your sister's forgiveness for throwing gravy at her head. He said, a slight smile playing at the corner of his mouth, as if he found what he just said to be humorous. Bartholomew obviously didn't find it a bit funny. But in a voice so soft I almost couldn't hear him, he apologized to his sister, who answered with a hug. Then taking their small hands and his big calloused ones, Mr. Kirkland bowed his head and spoke a short prayer. The court session over, Mr. Kirkland rose from his knees with a grunt while the children ran back into the kitchen smiling. I felt kind of awkward just standing there watching, but I had been too curious to just walk away. I was about to re-ask my unanswered question when Mr. Kirkland turned to me. Well, Thomas, I have to go help in the kitchen. You're welcome to join us. I was still trying to decide if I wanted to when music started blasting from the kitchen. And not instrumental hymns or Silent Night, but Last Christmas cranked to volume 10. Maybe the Kirklands aren't so uptight after all, I thought. Surprised, I walked into the kitchen and quickly realized the Kirklands were way less uptight than I had originally assumed. Everyone was cleaning and dancing at the same time. Macy was using a broom as a microphone, and by the way Mr. Kirkland danced, he must have spent some considerable time in the 80s in Funky Town. Mrs. Kirkland laughed at him as she scrubbed the stove, and I couldn't help but chuckle. It wasn't like anything I've ever seen before. Soap suds flew and dishes rattled together as whams sang out over the speakers. And there it was again, that difference. What was it? When the kitchen was pronounced clean, a monstrous platter of cookies was brought out from the pantry. I was instructed to pick out what I wanted. My hand had just barely left the platter, clutching a snickerdoodle, when the Kirkland children descended on it like eight thieves at a jewelry convention. When everyone had selected their treat, we started towards the living room, where Mr. Kirkland instructed everyone to find a seat. Once we were all seated, somewhat comfortably, it's hard to sit 11 people on a couch in an easy chair, Mr. Kirkland pulled out a black-bound Bible that looked like it had been seen some use. Normally I would have found some excuse to leave or anything to keep from having to listen to the Bible. But something about my evening in the Kirkland home made me curious. Everything had been so different than what I had originally expected. Maybe this would be as well. Mr. Kirkland flipped through a couple of pages, and then finding his place began to read. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. And it was while I sat there, crammed on a couch, listening to Mr. Kirkland's steady reading, that my question was answered. I'd always found it ironic that the angels had declared peace on earth, and and then everyone just goes on killing and hurting each other. I guess I'd always thought Christians were nutty for believing such a thing was possible. But here it was. I had found my answer. That's what was different about the Kirklands. They had peace on earth, a peace that filled their own home, a peace that changed how they lived. And just like that first Christmas, where God used a family to change the world, God used another family to change mine. Glory to God in the highest, and on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. Merry Christmas.